Hi, I'm Julia. And I'm Sam. I'm a composer. And I'm an actor. And this is the 29-Hour Podcast. Julia and I both uh, spent a lot of time developing new uh, pieces of theater. We actually met um, developing one of Julia's musicals. And along the way, we've gotten to work with some incredibly talented, super smart artists. We always just want to pick their brains. So this podcast is our conversations with those people that we are excited to share with you. This week, we're talking to actor Evan Maltby. Enjoy the episode. Um, the first time I was on stage actually was in an opera uh, uh, in Chautauqua, which uh, my mom works there over the summers. She's one of the like rehearsal and recital pianists there. Um, and uh, I was in, it was Falstaff and uh, at the end of the opera when Falstaff is like lured out into the woods and all the townspeople are going to make fun of him and teach him a lesson. Um, he was, he's like scared by all the townspeople and I was playing this goblin or like a, a you know, a town's boy <laughs> dressed as a goblin. And the director, uh, he, there were three of us and there were like two, I don't know, like adolescent teenage boys and then me, five years old. And... Uh, the 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 Falstaff, this amazing baritone, Mark Delavan, he's like staging. He's on the he's on his back on the floor. We've like scared him and he's fallen down. And uh, our director, Jay Lessinger, he said to these two the the two boys, okay, so you two leap over him, like cross him one at the same time, and then Evan, you follow, and then you follow over, and then do the reverse. And so the two boys leapt over him, and Mark is like a big guy, and then is also wearing his fat suit in rehearsals, oh, no. even right. So like this is like a mountain of a person at this point, especially for a five-year-old. And so I like, well, the director told me to go over there, so I crawled oh. over him. Oh no! <laughs> and like apparently, I don't remember this, uh, but apparently the rehearsal room just like dissolved <laughs> like rehearsal stopped oh. as people burst into laughter um and that it, it, like of course that was the staging like we kept that for sure and apparently jay has like since directed the uh, fall staff a couple more times since and you know like the whatever it was 15 20 years since then um and more than that uh and if he has a kid, oh if he has a, like a little it's kid, signature move. Yeah, exactly. He will like use that. Um, That's such a funny like childlike psychology of like not you know like knowing the goal in the most literal sense, but not sort of the larger goal. Right. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Um, what was I? Oh, so th- with opera, right? Going to it now. The thing for me that I notice most. And this might have to do with my relative distance from opera now, mm-hmm. but it seems to me like the if we're talking about like the purpose of the art form, mm-hmm. the primary um, the 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 reason why we're doing it or what's on what's on display at the fore is the prodigious talent of the vocalists mm. and maybe of the conductor or of the orchestra. Um, and then, the story and the acting and the set and everything else mm. that is involved in that production, as opposed to like you go to see so and so the soprano mm-hmm. who is known for this role that she's singing right. at the Met, for example, right? As opposed to in musical theater where the 
like theoretically the primary purpose is like telling the story. Yes. Yeah. And th- like I think that's especially nowadays given the way that musical theater and like Broadway is marketed has gotten a little fuzzier, right? Because Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot. Like there's been a, a slew of revivals lately where like the only reason I can understand why they're being produced is like as a vehicle for whatever star is going to be in it. Right. And for me, even like, and maybe this is me being super cynical, but like even those choices to me don't necessarily, or I'll say usually they don't feel like, you know what we need right now is this story told by this great person. Mm -hmm. It feels like a marketing ploy. It feels like a strategy on behalf of the theater's, to sell tickets to their subscribers right. with buzzy shows and buzzy names right. combined. Right. And that's, I mean, we could talk about accessibility of theater and why it is and is not for <laughs> hours, for days. Um, but yeah, it seems like oftentimes that that's a the, the, oh, I really have to see this great person in this Broadway show is a byproduct as opposed to perhaps the like the main selling point of an opera, mm-hmm. yeah. um, or more generally speaking, that opera is about like the sound and the performance of that sound mm-hmm. first. Yeah. Whereas musical theater, there is maybe a bit more play between if it's the the performance or if it's the story or if it's the production or whatever else. That's interesting. I totally am one hundred percent on board with that distinction. Yeah, that rings true to me. Yeah. How does how does that hit you as a composer? Um, well, I mean, I do think that. I mean, on one hand, I mean, I guess I'm sort of like lazy and selfish as a composer. When I'm writing something, I don't necessarily want any one element. It's not necessarily showcasing one element. I want the yeah. sum of the parts yeah. to stand the way I want them to. On the flip side, though, I do say. You know, I often do things that are difficult, but difficulty isn't quite the same case as showcasing. It's showcasing something, but it's showcasing something that's not very showy. You know, like a sort <laughs> of a musicianship or like yeah, smart. yeah. What do you mean so, by difficult? Like difficult to sing or yeah, you know, like difficult. Like I love really tight harmonies among different singers, which sure. are really hard to execute and tune. Mm-hmm. But I feel like most people don't hear a cluster of really hard harmonies and be like, oh wow, that's that's really impressive intonation. You know, right, right. I also wonder, too, if it's thinking about opera again, if it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy that, like, the audience of opera has been trained Mm. to actually have that kind Mm. of thought more often. How interesting. Right? Like, the beauty of this tenor's voice Mm -hmm. or, like, wow, that quintet at the end of Act One, like, the way they were all singing together. It's such a, like, phenomenal performance. And I don't know that the the casual quote-unquote musical theater audience member mm. necessarily would th- think that as quickly or as as readily. Maybe. I don't know. This is so interesting to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, because, like, as I'm thinking about the experiences I've had watching operas, like, my, you know, there have been exceptions, but, like, my um, primary experience is that, like, the performers are not prioritizing storytelling. Mm-hmm. And like for me as an audience member, that's like it. I'm done. Like I, I can't care about like a quote unquote like beautiful sound if like it's not in service of like the story and like 
that's why I 100% agree with you that like it seems like they're not prioritizing it on purpose, um, which is like fine for people who can get on board with that. But I just need to steer clear. <laughs> right, it's not for you. Yeah, I think yeah. I I think I feel the same way that yeah. like I maybe have just based on what you said just now, I like maybe have more openness to like sitting back and just like reveling in how well performed this aria just was or whatever. Not to say that like you don't have an appreciation for the thing is that like if I'm watching on like on YouTube like a clip of like one song, Mm. like sign me up. Like I'm ready to just hear like a beautiful voice. But if I'm in a theater in the course of an entire show and someone comes out and just like stands there with dead eyes and sings a beautiful song, I'm just like, I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> that's so interesting. Thinking of it, are there even YouTubes of opera performances? Because for me, I feel like it's so much of like that sound in that space and like the minutia of the sound, like that being picked up on some yeah. random like microphone and then compressed and then put on YouTube. Is that a thing? I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I wasn't necessarily speaking about opera. Okay, fair. But like, like an art song or something. Yeah. An art song. Yeah. Or, or even yeah. just like a, a song from a musical performed by someone who isn't necessarily like killing it acting wise, mm-hmm. but is like killing it vocally. Mm. Totally. On YouTube, I'm screaming. <gasps> In the theater, I'm dying. Yeah. You know? Oh, you don't have the patience for it. No. Right. I buy that. Yeah, that that makes sense to me. Yeah. So how does that make you feel about Reb and Vodka and me? If if we're like using this paradigm, is it an opera? I mean, I think that the people who are trying to make new opera would claim to be story first. Uh-huh. Sure. Yeah. And that's a world that I'm totally, completely unfamiliar with. Right. I do feel like when we were writing it, I thought of it more as a musical, mainly because I think of myself as a musical theater composer. Uh So just like by definition of being me, it's like anything I write is, you know, a musical. Sure. I don't know. And then maybe I'm like, you know, labels don't matter. And anyone who will do my thing for any reason, anywhere, great. It is whatever you want it to Mm -hmm. be. That's probably how I actually feel. Well, let me ask you, because um, like say an opera company wants to produce your show with like classical opera singers, like is that something you are cool with? Yeah, I think so. Yeah? I'm so curious about what that would be. Me too. Because for the listeners at home who are curious, it's like the the score was written on Ableton, which is like an electronic-based sounding um, composition yeah. software. Yeah. And so it's very like, it sounds very like modern and like, but not like modern, like contemporary opera modern, like modern, like pop modern. Right. Yeah. 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 That's, I mean, that's a thing, I guess. It's like, it is very sort of idiomatically pop. Right. And that feels different than, like, I don't think I've ever, things that are called like a pop opera are not opera. Right. I, I'm also curious what you feel like about, uh, opera singers singing Mm -hmm. something I guess specifically like Reb which is like a bunch of high school students as the characters right so like and like those voices are gonna not only sound older but sound so different yeah Yeah. I mean the age thing I think is a thing I think it is probably meant to be on young people Uh uh-huh but like what if like the New York City Opera Children's Chorus not that that exists anymore right but like the Met Chorus (laughs) right like what if the Met chorus were to perform 
Reb and Vodka and me, right? Like, I'm so curious what that would what yeah, that would be like. Me too. Well, I guess there are like there are shows that like go back and forth between opera and musical theater. Like opera companies perform Sweeney Todd mm-hmm. or Porgy. Yeah, yeah. even so, even like some of the more like golden agey, like you know, Carousel. Chautauqua. There was one summer where they did. I, I, I was in it. We did The Music Man as huh. like the fourth show of their season, uh-huh. which is traditionally the place where they like have a little bit more fun, whatever, <laughs> right? Um, but something which is in that more like golden agey. Ah, yeah, we really need to have singers in this one, whatever mm. that means. Mm-hmm. Mm, um, right, but there are there are shows which have kind of sometimes they're musicals or or they were written by musical theater composers, but opera companies like also take ownership or partial yeah. ownership over them. Yeah, that's really interesting. And they and they do sort of tend to happen differently. Like they end up on stage mm-hmm. in like seeming very different. Yes, or can. Um. I was going to ask you, as we're ta- as we as you mentioned that as a child you were performing with the opera. Like, do, you, do <laughs> I don't know how to phrase this. Like, so do you feel like your career now like extends all the way back from there, or does it sort of feel like like before college and after college, or or like before something and after something. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I don't know where the delineation is, but it definitely feels separate to uh-huh. me. Um, I think partly that has to do with, weirdly enough, with being a native New Yorker. Yeah. And going to college not for theater, and then coming back to the city Weirdly enough, actually, like having had a professional life as a performer as a child and then like showing up and actually knowing nothing about how this business works, Um, like not knowing what an EPA was, not knowing even like really about Playbill.com or like Mm -hmm. auditions there or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, Weirdly, I think actually, despite loving musical theater my whole life and going to shows with my family all the time uh being in being at city opera kind of like made me positioned me outside of the musical theater space or Mm -hmm. the broadway space in a way that made me feel like i was very much like engaging with broadway as a child as a tourist Mm -hmm. And weirdly enough, now that I think about it, like, I think there was very much a story that I, like, was told or told myself that, like, because opera is the higher art, so (laughs) to speak, that, like, this was something lower and less. And, like, I would get to it when I, (gasps) when, like, when it was the time for it. You know what I mean? Which is, like, so, thinking back on it now, so silly. Uh But I think I kind of, like, poo-pooed not the work itself or the shows that I saw, because I loved all of that, but the idea that there was, like, a business and a community to it, which I was not necessarily a part of, mm-hmm. because I already, so to speak, I already had something like grander <laughs> being at City Opera, which yeah. like has totally screwed me up in my adult life for oh. sure. How do you mean? Uh, I mean, I like, 
I feel very much behind the ball all the time hmm. in musical theater spaces. Huh. Um, in what ways? Uh, major imposter syndrome, for oh. one. Um, well, I've got that, too, and I was never doing opera. Well, okay, <laughs> fair. I mean, like, I think the, like, the, the not so well kept secret of imposter syndrome is that everybody has it, right? right. right? But like the corollary to that is that it doesn't matter. It's still like right. knowing that doesn't right. make right. me feel right. much right. better, <laughs> which is sucks. Um, but I like, I very much am keenly aware when I am in, when I'm like doing a musical or like in a space which is a musical theater space. Um, like at a at a concert or you know hanging out with people, whatever it is, um, that I don't know as much as everybody else, and I didn't go to school for this, and I don't know all the names I'm supposed to know, both oh, both like, of like traditional like the mm-hmm, canon and mm-hmm. also contemporary. Mm-hmm. Stuff. You're saying like you don't know as much in terms of like the community and the business, not in terms of like you're what you're doing like well i also feel that oh well i would say both things <laughs> um, but but they are they're uh related but not yeah. the same right yeah for okay. sure um interesting yeah do you feel like that gets that's been getting better every time maybe um i think i'm just like i've been thinking a lot about recently i've been thinking i've been thinking a lot recently about uh, the I the like another like fiction this story that I like taught myself or was taught about being some like perfect idealized version of myself mm-hmm. and how that's t- so unhelpful and like <laughs> totally bunk right like oh what is the it's, um, I just read this poem. The other day, it's called Peanut Butter. I think the line is, uh, I am not interested in goals of any kind. Um, I'm so much more interested nowadays, or I am like curious about being good enough. Mm. Yeah. Instead of being perfect. Right. And like, damn good enough, right? Mm. Maybe even excellent sometimes. (laughs) But like, being perfect, like, this way madness lies, you know, like yeah. here there be monsters right? trying to like, I will never be as knowledgeable as someone who went to school for musical theater for four years, or I will never be as good a dancer, right? As someone who has been dancing their whole life. And it is useful for me and healthier, I think to like, do a better job, which I'm not good at, of meeting myself where I am mm-hmm. yeah. when it comes to these things and just recognizing, like, whenever I'm in these spaces, either, like, I'm here because someone asked, someone has asked me to be or because I have chosen to be because I like the work that's being done and it, like, moves me in some way, like, lights some artistic fire in me. Um, and that that's enough. Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard to convince myself of that sometimes, yeah. but I'm like, but I'm interested in trying to, trying to teach myself that story yeah. instead. Yeah, absolutely. I was realizing, I was just thinking about today how this is sort of related to the idea of like being, you know, good enough plus as opposed to perfect, where 
I think I'm okay with the idea that like I have not achieved perfection. But if you even begin to suggest to me that I could have tried harder and I didn't, I like cannot tolerate it. And I was trying to think about why that is true and like is there a world where it could be true that I could have tried harder and didn't and that doesn't devastate my sense of identity? Yeah, yeah. My like my chest gets tight thinking about that prospect. Oh god. Well, the thing that is immediately coming to me after hearing you say that is like, we are comprised of so many different parts of ourselves and we have to weigh those in balance and we have to like give, give each one the amount of priority that we decide it needs. Right. And so like, yeah, of course there like literally with every single person there's a way that we could have like done more in any particular direction. Mm-hmm. But like I think the thing that I have to try and figure out how to do is be okay with doing the amount that I'm doing here because it means that I get to do this amount over here in this facet mm-hmm. of my life, you know? And and like being happy about all of the pieces balancing. Yeah, I guess it's true. It's a fiction that you have an unlimited well of time and energy such that you can do everything with 100%. I guess the fiction for me is that, yeah, that like, I mean, because not everything takes 100% of your energy. Right. So like the idea that you can max out everything you do. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that's always true. I think that's also like a very typically nowadays feeling this Mm. like idea of like maximizing oneself or like being efficient with one's time yeah Mm -hmm. right and And always being busy and yeah oh always being busy let's talk about that (laughs) what a demon that is (laughs) i feel like maybe i'm just like unenlightened on this i feel like i truly enjoy being busy like which is great that's like if that works for you, that's great. <laughs> but like I also think like I think there's like a culture where it's like, oh, if you're not always busy, you're like underachieving, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. whereas like it's becoming clear to me that like it's important to have moments when you're not busy to recharge and regroup and not burn out. Or at least I'll speak for myself. For for me, it's important to have moments where I'm not always busy and yeah. to not beat myself up if like one night I'm just like, you know what? I just need to like sit at home and just like recharge. No, I agree. I like those things. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm sure... I'm sure you guys have talked about this before because it's not a, a fresh idea, but like the, the 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 being public about one's busyness, right? right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like the impulse to answer the question, how are you, with an answer that is actually asking the question, what are you working on? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. <gasps> That's, yeah. Being like, busy as like a marker of um, prestige. Not That's the wrong word, but like... Yeah. You know what I mean? There's cachet to it, yeah. right? Because it it demonstrates that you are In desired demand. by your yeah. community and like mm-hmm. the the community theoretically of the person who is asking you that question as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like that reflects theoretically upon your prodigious talent that you mm-hmm. have because of course worth. everybody wants to work with you yeah. and thereby your worth as a person. Yeah. But right. you're right. That is such an interesting thing. Like we've talked a little bit about like answering the question, what's next for you? But that is a funny leap of Ugh. even how are you interpreting that to mean, oh, what am I doing next? Right. Yeah. Right. Or, like, not the same question. Right. And I like truly try to ask people sometimes like, how are you? 
And I will also like I fall into this trap myself sometimes. Somebody too. will ask me like, "Hey, how's it going?" And I will say, "Well, here's what I've been doing." Like that's mm-hmm. that's how I will answer that question when it's not the question that I was actually asked. Right. And that's partly like just the way our language works, right. you know, like how you greet somebody, but I think it's important to recognize that like we can just answer the question yeah. we've been asked. Yeah. But we have been conditioned to like always demonstrate that we're valuable. Yes. Because if we can't do that, we're told that if we can't do that, we have no worth. Right. Right. And, and like it's a project of significance. Right. And like ultimately if we want to get kind of pop psychology about it, right? Like every project of significance is actually just trying to fool yourself into thinking you're not going to die. Mm, or oh when boy. you do, at least you did that project of significance. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, at least I'll be remembered and my work will live after me. Um, I morbidly uh, think about that a lot. Yeah. I, I think I've said this before to you maybe, but I often, especially when I'm flying because I'm afraid of planes, think about if I die right now, what's going to happen to all my shows? Which composer is going to take over to keep doing them? Whoa. <laughs> wow. Will wow. someone go onto my computer and get the files? <laughs> That's nuts. That's so interesting to me. I have a little list in my head, right? Like for every show of which composer I would secretly want to take over in the event of my death mid-writing. Is that something you could like put in a living will? Probably. (laughs) Probably, right? Right? Like not to get like super morbid about this, but you could like bequeath your half-written shows (laughs) to people. I wonder... You'd feel so obligated. Because part of me is like, they don't want to write my half-written show. But you'd probably <laughs> feel so guilty of someone that did that to you. Someone that you know at all. I, I don't know. I like I might take it as a... It would like certainly be a like big responsibility. But I think it would take it as a compliment. Like, this person trusted me with their work. And like they think that my sensibility matches up with theirs or with what they were working on. Yeah. That's nice. I don't know. I... I don't think I have any stuff like like if I were to if I were to die tomorrow, I'm not sure that I have much work that like I would need bequeathing to other people. Yeah. Right. It's, like I don't have anything for actors. Yeah. 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 I was gonna ask you, going back a little bit, like when you're saying you have this feeling of um not knowing as much as the other people in the room, like do you also feel that way when you're working on like straight plays or Yes, although that has less to do specifically with like my lack of uh, my weird like childhood separation from musical theater and then my lack of going to school for it. And more, I guess this is the school thing still is like not having studied theater in college. Yeah. Um, I was a comparative literature major um, and then would like do theater programs during the summer. Hmm. Um, So that's like where I got my training, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and then, like, taking classes every now and then here and there since school. Um, well, was that when you um, when you applied to college, did you were you thinking, like, I want to be an actor, but I want to study something else? Or what was yes. this? OK. Yeah. Very much so. Um, and I think, again, like keeping keep on coming back to these this idea of like the stories we are taught, right? But like growing up in New York City as a very, very academically minded and academically high performing student Mm -hmm. in a high school that like was academically rigorous and was about the education pipeline, so to speak. Mm -hmm. I, 
my uh, this is a this is a very de- illustrative story. Um, my mom and Kim Grigsby are old friends. Mm. Um, uh, and should we do explanatory comma, comma for the listener who Kim Grigsby is? Uh, she is uh, Broadway mostly now, but um, a music director. Um, so she she runs shows and makes sure they sound great, um, and they do. Um, so she was doing uh, the original Spring Awakening my senior year of high school, and uh, my mom and I went to go see the show, had a wonderful time, went backstage to see Kim afterwards, say hi, hey, congrats, wonderful. Um, you know, she gave us a little backstage tour or whatever, and at one point uh, she said to me, oh, Evan, you sing, right? You should sing for me. And without missing a beat, I said effectively something like, oh, thank you very much, I'm going to college in the fall. <laughs> and like not to say that that is like some fork in my life and like who knows what could have happened if I had said oh yes that's so exciting I would love to right mm-hmm. because could have done that and then gone to college in the fall mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. not to say that that's some weird turning point in my right. life that I can point to but I think it is interesting that the paradigm in my head was finish high school go to college right yeah. Yeah. No question of like taking a year off to like be a performer right. or to travel or like take a job somewhere, right? None of that. Like the next thing to do is go to college. Or or not even like go to college and study theater. Right. Well, I yes. And I think that was partly my, again, like thought of like, well, I've already been doing it as a kid for so long. Okay. And partly mm. also like being very brainy and wanting I, like I thought I, I went to college thinking I was going to be a, an art history major mm-hmm. um, and then f- like fell into complet. Um, but yeah, my intention was always to go to a liberal arts college mm-hmm. and study not theater mm-hmm. and then be an actor afterwards. Mm-hmm. And so like it didn't matter to me what I did major in because I mm. knew that I didn't like there weren't going to be jobs which were unavailable to me because I didn't have a degree in theater the way that like if I wanted to be a doctor or work in finance or whatever, like I would have had to be a poli-sci major or, you know, whatever, Mm -hmm. right? Econ. Um, What about like extracurricular theater in college? So, yeah. So I was very involved in that. That was like how I... was doing it. It wasn't like a blackout period. No. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. I would like do those summer programs and then like put what I had learned into practice all Mm. year at school. So theater was always like a part of my life and my intention for after college. But... While I was there, I like I didn't take the intro acting class um, for a couple different reasons, and then like kind of never looked back. Um, and I ended up taking some like theater study courses because mm-hmm. they were cross listed as complete. Mm-hmm. Um, and I took the theater senior seminar as a complete major after like uh, finagling with the department chairs. Mm-hmm. And I feel it was like like seventy five percent. This is the truth. Twenty five percent. This is college bullshit Mm -hmm. but I sold them on me taking that course because I said that theater was my focus language for comparative literature Mm. I buy it yeah which is like a little a little squirrely a little slimy Mm -hmm. college but like felt very true to me as well as also like my knowing that is a little bullshit (laughs) Um, but uh, you know as opposed to like Italian or Spanish or Japanese or whatever. Mm. Um, so I took I took the theater senior seminar. I was very involved in theater all four years at school, but 
knew that I didn't have to be a major in order to be uh, an actor, a professional actor at the other end, which is part of why when I did finally get back to the city, I was like a totally fresh baby. I had <laughs> yeah. no idea what was going on, partly because like I thought I had an idea as a kid mm-hmm. of how it worked, but I truly did not. <laughs> so you were you were almost like negative knowing. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that like really set me back yeah. and is part of why I think I still feel to this day the imposter syndrome that I do. Huh. Wow. How soon after you came to the city did you hook up with the flea and the bats? Uh, so let's see. I was doing some like a workshop with some friends from school some Williams folks um, who had a small theater company right out of school. We were like working on some script of some kind. And on a subway ride home from Brooklyn, one of the actors who was in that workshop, a phenomenal actor, Lily Stein, who I had met at one of those summer programs years ago at the Powerhouse at Vassar one summer, um, she mentioned uh that there were auditions coming up in a couple weeks at this theater uh, to like join their company. I had never heard of the flea. <laughs> I had no idea what their, despite like being a New York local, mm-hmm. had no idea what their vibe was, what the whole thing of the flea was. But I thought, oh, that sounds cool. Great. I will also go to there. <laughs> uh, and then I was at the flea for two years. And did you feel like being, like, a part of a community like that? Like, did that chip away at imposter syndrome at all? Somewhat. Um, I don't know if it chipped away at the imposter syndrome, but it did. It was very important to me, that feeling of community. Um, the, I think the thing that was most important to me about it was this. And, like, I'm so curious to hear your thoughts on community Sam and like how this works and how it doesn't but for me the like idea of um, I just went to this uh, Paris Review poetry event this past weekend and one of the poets uh, Kayad Akbar he uh, Kaveh Akbar excuse me um, he walked on stage and he said I feel very among Mm. right now and I love that I fucking love that Um, and that is what the community at the flea felt like for me Mm -hmm. Um, just by virtue of like being this family of young people who were like kind of roughing it kind of as being generous um, we're roughing it uh, and like cereals was so much fun Mm. and so rough and tumble I love the idea of cereals so much man it's so good for anyone who doesn't know cereals were this series that they did at the flea where people would have a week to put together. I forget how many there were, but there were about 10 minutes, right? Yeah. And everyone would do all the different ones and the audience would vote for which ones got to come back to do the next installment next week. And if you got voted in, you could go back and do the next thing. Mm-hmm. I, like, I thought that was so cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was awesome. I always wanted to try to pitch someone on doing a serial musical with me. I know that there were serial musicals, but yeah. I never got to do one. Oh, I, I think serials is still, oh, but the writing, the, the way the writing staff works is different now, I think. Fair. Um, that would have been great. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, what is your experience, Sam, with... Well, I've never had, like, a community as such where it's, like, a- an actual, like, 
organized like thing with a name, right? Yeah. Like or like through a theater company or anything like that. But I do we talk about community a lot on this podcast. Great. <laughs> I do have like um I do feel like I belong to a community. Uh-huh. It's just less um defined in that same way. Sure. Um but but it does like give me like similar to what you were saying, like a, a feeling of um that that feeling of like being among, right? Like um helps me feel like um I have something to offer. Whereas like if there's no one um who <laughs> I just had a thought in my head of like what is this community if it can't be defined? <laughs> Whoa. Is it basically like, a radio are, show? No, like, are the people listening <laughs> to this podcast wondering what the hell I'm talking about, you know? Right. So, like, I guess, like, when I think of my community, I think of um, the writers that I tend to work with. Yeah. And I think of um, the directors that I tend to work with. And I even think of the actors that um, I tend to work with by virtue of the fact that they are also actors that the writers I tend to work with tend to work with. Did that make sense? Yeah. Um, so um, uh, I think when you don't have something like that, it's easy to wonder if you're just delusional about the fact that you think you're talented and have something to offer in this industry. Right. And when there are people repeatedly saying, I want you to work on this thing that I'm um, working on, it gives you that feeling of like, oh, like, I at least have value here, you know? Yeah. And then my, um, my, another part of it is like discovering that there are all of these little pockets of communities everywhere, you know, like I, I think I talked about this on the podcast once, but I once did a reading with a theater company that I had, like, it was like a friend of a friend referred me for this like one-off thing. I had no connection to. And when I got there, they were all doing their own thing that they Mm. were all completely bought into and I was like I am not bought into this which is fine because like I don't have to continue to participate in that community um but there are all of these little pockets where like the artists who um can be that for each other find each other and so it's been nice to realize that like I feel like I found that place where I belong which is like not necessarily what I thought it was going to look like when I first moved to the city what did you think it would look like well you know like but like I also like knew very little about the industry when I moved here and so like in my head it's like oh like you moved to New York and you go on Broadway you know what I mean like (laughs) right um which is how it happens for some people and is not at all how it is happening for me (laughs) um which is like um you know at first like the longer it was taking me to gun on Broadway, like the more discouraging it was. And now it's sort of like, no, like what I want to do is work with the artists where I feel like we share um, common artistic inclinations, you know? And if that's, wherever that is, that's where I want to be. How did you find that community? How did it come to you or how did you come to it? That's, <laughs> that's a good question. I mean, I think... Um, I was always interested in new musicals and like in, in um, college when YouTube was first um, sort of happening, all I was doing was going on and like looking up like (laughs) new composers and like trying to find like 
Um, so enterprising. I know. I, I, I wasn't connecting with them. I was just uh-huh. watching because I because I, mean, I, I was so. just a fan. Yeah. You know. But um, it, it's interesting. I was thinking about this this week of like um. Because what I'm about to do, I think, is sort of like trace like my career, and like I, I, what I always want this podcast to be is like people just like tracing their career. But then I also wonder if like people's careers aren't as traceable. It doesn't matter. Um, no, I love that idea. I, I bet everyone's is. But Ooh, the so summer be- next. sure. <laughs> the summer before I graduated college, I did a summer program at NYU at Cap Twenty One which was sort of like my only connection to the industry when I moved here. Like I met a few people through that and I met a few teachers through that, that um, were, you know, um, give or take sort of like um, a part of my journey once I got here. And one of those people who I was in class with um, when I moved here, when I graduated, um, she and I decided we wanted to, she was like, I just want to get up on a stage. And I was like, oh, me too. Like, that sounds great. And I was like, what I want to do is like sing these songs that I love, which are like from these new writers, uh-huh. right? And so we came up with this idea of performing a cabaret, all of songs by um, new, you know, emerging writers or whatever. Right. And this and is just like collected from your YouTube favorites mm-hmm. list, essentially. Yeah. And it was me and this girl and um, one other girl. And we just you know, invited people to the duplex on a random December night Uh and it was fun. And I had a couple of videos from it and that was nice. Um, and then I think one of the composers happened to see the video of this song of his that we performed and like wrote to us and was like, this is great. And it's sort of like emboldened, uh, we, we didn't make much of a connection with him, but it's sort of like emboldened us to be like, Oh, we should keep doing these concerts. Yeah. And so for the rest of the year, um, that was so that was a December of 2009. And then throughout 2010, starting in June, we did one a month till December of different writers. So each uh-huh. month we featured a different. And it was all songs by this composer. All songs by one, one composer. And um, so that was like a thing that was like keeping me busy, but was not necessarily. Um, uh, uh, you know, anything, you know, financially, whatever. Sure. So, um, one of those Theater composers, <laughs> one of those composers that we reached out to and who worked with us was Adam Guan. Um, and for whatever reason, that connection, um, stuck a little bit. And he asked, he invited me to do a couple other projects of his. Because, uh, like, the, the concerts were, like, we were very much in charge. We were basically mm-hmm. asking the writers, like, we want to perform these songs. Oh, and wow. because they were all sort of emerging, they were, like, great. Um, any platform is a good platform. Yeah. Like, But we, like, w- we, the naive people that we were, didn't really understand that, like, composers probably want to have more to do with how these things are getting sure. organized and performed That's right, because that when we did mine, I feel like I was pretty pushy. I was pretty involved. I feel like I did like a lot. Oh, right, because you... Oh, so, Julia, you so, were one of these yeah. composers. But Although, I was not involved at that point because oh. after that first year, I booked a tour and left, and then my collaborator kept doing it without me, uh-huh. and that's when they did it with Julia. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, which wow. we discovered like later. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so... Um, oh, what was I saying? That it was really you guys doing what Oh, the- right. So, um, so uh, right. So then when Adam was reaching out to me, he was inviting me in to mm-hmm. his world. Yes. 
And it, it was just sort of like through that and through his friends seeing me in his things, um, reaching out to me to do their things. And uh-huh. then it just sort of started snowballing. But I can literally pinpoint everything back to... To those concerts to and that email spe- from Adam Guan. Spe- uh, he wasn't the one who emailed us first. Oh, but, okay. um to to the, to doing that concert with him and then yeah. him inviting me into his world just sort of started to um, snowball um, into the world where um, um, people who had similar artistic inclinations to me were seeing me perform, noticing that they had you know similar artistic inclinations and then inviting me into their world and yeah. cool. Um, so do you? I mean, I guess this is 10 years ago now, but like, do you find that a lot of the work that you do in the city at least is through like referrals and direct Absolutely. requests as opposed to auditions? I I have booked jobs from auditions where I didn't know anyone involved, but, um, but they've never been um, anything that led to anything else. Yeah, sure. Um, like they've never, they've never like contributed to that snowball. Right. They've always been these sort of like small things that happen in a corner. Um, whereas like all of these things with referrals feel like they're all part of this um, snowball of my career. Fascinating. Um, Wait, so I want to do the same question to you. If yeah. you were like snowball or chain, what's what's one of your first links and where did it go? So I've already started this story by saying right. like. Williams to that workshop to Lily Stein to the flea Mm -hmm. and then like the flea and cereals kind Mm -hmm. of exploded things for Mm -hmm. me a little bit like that's how we met originally um is doing that workshop of when it was still called pied yes um isn't that isn't that sort of yeah uh, that was yeah. the very, very first. Was that the that very material. first that was one? The very first. No way! Oh, I didn't realize. Yeah. That's so cool. And I remember so clearly Ben came out and being like, "I have this wonderful person." I think you were sort of busy because we. Yes. He was like, he can come in, you know, for like these days. Uh-huh. You know, it's going to be worth it. We're going to snag him, and then we got to meet each other. Yeah, that's so great. Um, so thanks, Ben. Um, and it was so like a lot of stuff like that happened while I was at the flea. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and like I met a ton of playwrights and not as many composers necessarily. Um, and those, I, I feel like I still feel very attached to a lot of those people. I'm not sure how many like jobs necessarily or like shows that I've done have come from those connections, except for the two very notable ones, which are that, so I, I left the flea, um, summer of 2015, I think, I want to say, because um, uh, I got a job uh, out in Colorado that uh, got me my card. Um, and then I came back, and just before I'd left the flea, one of the last things that I had done was an episode of Serials, or uh, a Serials episode of this show called Kapowie Gogo. Um, which was written by Matt Cox, which I like saw the first episode of as an audience member and like grabbed him at Souths afterwards and said, hey, Matt, I please write me into episode two. I don't care what I'm doing. It was just, you know, like anime, video game, comic book, 
genre parody. The whole first episode was like, we're going to traffic very hard in Final Fantasy and Legend of Zelda and Pokemon. <laughs> and like, <laughs> I was all about that. <laughs> um, and so I got to do one episode of Kapowi before I left the flea. When I got back at the end of the summer, I checked in with Matt and uh, there was like maybe ideas in his mind of putting it all together and moving the show out of serials and doing it somewhere else, which ended up happening. Um, Kapawi ran ultimately, we did it about once a month at uh, the pit for like seven months. Um, wow. And it was, it's like, it was a big show. It's four and a half hours long. Huh. Oh, Whoa. oh, this show, huh. guys, is so cool. <laughs> it's the coolest thing I've ever done. <laughs> it's like you show up on Saturday or Sunday afternoon. Uh, and there's like cereal and milk waiting for you. And the show, like any good Saturday morning cartoon, is organized episodically. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are nine, like, or as in the last draft at least, there are nine, like, 20, 25 minute episodes. You take little breaks in between and then larger ones every three, and you binge watch the show. Oh, oh my that's God. So fun. And it's so good. <laughs> oh, man. I, ah. I like that character that I played. Everybody played a bunch of characters mostly. Um, and my like main character, this guy, Tuxedo Gary. Uh, <laughs> I like, I have so much love for Gary and how much of a normal in a world of supers he is. <gasps> Gary like walks on stage every time and like his sure that he's the main character mm. and he is not <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing uh, but so we did Kapowie for a really long time and that was wonderful and that was all like people from the flea essentially mm-hmm. um, we eventually started to feed in some pit folks who we had met and become friendly with um, and as Kapowie was winding down uh, Matt had another idea which was to write a play about the Hufflepuff experience of the Harry Potter saga um, uh, and uh, I remember telling him actually that like I would love to do Cedric in that show, um, and that was Puffs. Puffs ran at the pit for another like eight months once a week, um, and then when it transferred, I couldn't stick with the show because it remained non-union when the new producers took over. Was um, that a hard decision? Was there any like? I mean, I like turned over every stone I could yeah. in the moment yeah. um, to try and like figure out something with with equity to make it work. Yeah. Um, but because the show was in New York, there were like lots of extra restrictions mm-hmm. on how equity would or would not allow like a mixing of union and non-union folks. Huh. Um, so yeah, it, it was like a huge bummer to have to effectively like sunset myself out of the show um, because you know, for whatever monetary reasons that the show is going to remain non-union. Um, uh, and then since then, in the past like three years, it's been a bit more bounce around for me. Um, I'm not sure necessarily that I feel the same snowballing yeah. effect that you feel. Do you still feel that now? Or was that like yeah, an earlier I, career I thing? I do. You do? Um I do. I really honestly feel like the things that are coming my way are because of previous work. Yeah. Um, maybe that's just because I'm a terrible auditioner. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, you know what? I say that about myself, but also, like, last week I was a very atypical week for me in that it was very busy. I did three readings last oh, week. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was nuts. <laughs> 
Um, but all three of those, one of them was with Pipeline, and uh, like it was an email that I got from Tom Costello, the Hello, associate Costello. there. He and I grew up together. No way. Yeah. That's awesome. We were in the same calculus group in high school. Incredible. So, and I met Tom at the Flea. Mm-hmm. So like that was that. Um, another was a reading that I, like just a round table that I did at the Lark, which was by a playwright who I did another play with that Ben Kamein was one of the co-directors on. So like that's another flea thing mm-hmm. eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the third was a reading at the Sheen Center of a play by my friend Matt Barbeau, who is another person who I met at the flea. So like really it does <laughs> for me. I think I'll come back to the flea. But for me it feels less like a snowballing effect and more of like I spent two years there like – growing out lots of tendrils and like yeah. webbing across a like pretty wide range of people and every now and then like one of those tendrils will flower right does that make sense yeah totally yeah 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 because the point three different as yeah. i'm thinking about it right now like currently it doesn't like the snowball metaphor is not entirely accurate uh-huh currently it's just that like there was a period where um, there were three shows I was like attached to in development that just like I sort of felt like I kept um, bouncing back and forth between the three of them doing readings. That's cool. Um, yeah, it is cool. Um, and so that just sort of felt like this like and, you know, each stage of each of those readings was sort of like um, the next level of fanciness right so i think that's where this sort of like snowball um uh feeling was coming from but um one of those shows we've already done the production of the next one i'm doing the production of this summer and the third one i think at this point i'm off the ride so (laughs) so now that's pretty good odds though (laughs) yeah i yeah can't can't complain um so so i i am currently wondering like i'm what I've been thinking about a lot right now is like when I get back from the show I'm doing this summer, wh- wh- what's going to happen? Because sure. because those projects, which like for the past um, number of years have been sort of like um, touchstones for me, are all mm. done. Right. You know? Those like boxes have been checked yeah. in a way <laughs> like things that things when like if i'm having a bad day and i'm thinking like should i quit the business in the back of my head i can be like well i'm still attached to this thing you know what i mean like th- i won't have those anymore right uh, that makes me think of a like really big question i guess actually and like i'm interested to hear both of your thoughts on this which is like when when you're, I guess, writing a show or like in development on a show, working on it, what is the end goal, right? Like when, what is the box being checked and Mm -hmm. when does that happen? Right. Yes. (laughs) Right? Yeah. I mean, I feel like for writing shows, there are a couple of them. Like one of them is like, like the first huge box. Well, okay, the first little box is like, someone other than you is somehow involved. Like, even if it's just, like, you're developing it in a writer's group or, like, you're doing a reading with an organization. Uh Like, any other entity wants to help. Then I feel like 
the next like box is like it is produced by like some sort of theater company or producer you know where people who's not just you and people come to see it right are you like talking the, like full full production yeah, at this full point production. as opposed to so are like workshops and that kind of stuff that's, that's somewhere in between those two things yeah. box one okay great which you know there's many levels of but like yes, it's not sub, a new tier yes right cool <laughs> and then i feel like the next thing which i have never done is some form of either like pro either like licensed like published and licensed uh-huh. or like some you know commercial or nonprofit in New York City yeah <laughs> for me that's like the frontier that's like space or deep under the sea or whatever <laughs> right yeah <laughs> how about you guys well i mean i think as an actor who like spends a lot of time helping out with this development i guess you're like tier 1 um if I'm involved in that tier two, that production, uh, unless that same production is the one that moves on to tier three, I'm sort of off the ride at that point. Because like, if it if it becomes licensed, like I have nothing mm-hmm. to do with that. You yeah, know? that's true. So in this sense, like I think that's like like once the production happens. I sort of have no like it's very possible that it'll continue to be developed like I've I've seen shows that have had productions and then go back into workshops for another production right. but that's not um if that happens like cool but like I no longer am like holding on to that you know what I mean Yeah Yeah I don't know what do you think I think for me in a way I kind of only have two tiers because when I when I am in the development process, which like to be fair, in my experience has been much rarer than with yours, Sam, right? Like I like <laughs> speaking of the name of the workshop, like I don't think I've ever even done a 29 hour huh. workshop of a show or 29 hour hour reading. Um, uh, I just like have done, smaller readings like the ones that I did last week or like the civilians workshop that we did of Reb years ago, that kind of thing. Wasn't that a 29 hour reading? It might have been a 29 hour. Well, then I've done one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But for me, those times when when the, the play or the show is like still in utero, so to speak, my involvement there to me feels much more in service of the work and of the writers of the work oh yeah absolutely like it but but to to the degree that it like doesn't really check a box for me it doesn't i think cross your mind as like like i want to see this through to production you're just sort of like that no for sure i feel that like i I want i want to be i want to be in i want to be part of the second box getting checked from the writer's perspective but from my perspective that is more akin to a first box being checked because I think I like I struggle quite a lot with and this is true of like you know little one-off readings that I've done as well right like being in that place as an actor and like maybe you sympathize with this as well Sam but like being in that place and like thinking like is this kind of just like a really long audition for me (gasps) oh you know interesting and then so like for me, the like true attachment to the show in terms of like artistic work that I am doing 
comes more so from that second tier, mm-hmm. um, which is maybe now that I'm like saying this out loud, like failure is too strong of a word, but maybe it's there is opportunity for me to like adjust my thinking on this because like there is great deal of artistic work to be done by me in that first yeah level as well, and I like not ah, I don't know I'm going back and forth. I've on this. found I've found many of these quick readings to be like very artistically satisfying. Uh huh. I think it's very possible. Yeah. I understand what you're saying about it feeling like a long audition. I've never I've never quite thought about it like that. Right. I've thought about it in the sense of like, um, it. In in that direction, the way that I think about it is like, oh, like they're going to get to really see like what I can do and how sure. it fits with this material. And in that sense, it's kind of an audition. But the primary thing I'm thinking about is just like serving the material and inhabiting it in a way that feels um, good for me and for them. Right. You know, and I think maybe the only adjustment that I would make to the way you just put that is I would f- swap the order of feels good for me and for them. I would say <laughs> feels good for them and for me. Right? So like, and I know we're like kind of splitting hairs here, but I think <laughs> what's going on in my head in these situations is that like what I'm most keen on being a part of in this process is improving the work that we're doing. Uh-huh kind of disassociated from my involvement with it at all, despite the fact that I am very much involved (laughs) in the potential improvement of it by virtue of my inhabiting the piece. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. But isn't, isn't the way that you improve it, isn't that by bringing what you bring to it and letting the writers see a fully inhabited thing, you know? Yes. Yes, I think it is. Um, and I wonder if my like my struggle with seeing it that way certainly has much more to do with me than anything else, right? Like I think this is a self-esteem issue. I think this is a, like a self-love, self-respect thing. Heaven. <laughs> <laughs> Are you saying that out of sympathy or yeah. because I'm speaking your language yeah. or both? Both, <laughs> yeah. both. Um, yeah, that I think like you're absolutely right that the work that we do in those rooms is about everybody doing their best work and everybody doing their best work for themselves and for each other yeah. as opposed to for each other and then for themselves, right? Like as a byproduct. Put on your own airplane mask before you assist the child next to you. Exactly. Yeah. But then I do also understand the idea of like um, a reading not feeling as artistically, um, I don't know what the word is, but like feel like not feeling the same as a production. Mm-hmm. Sure, of course, right. Um, but I, maybe it's just because I've spent so much time doing readings. I've like found a way to have it be satisfying for me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I wonder if I'm just like not good enough at giving myself credit for the work that I'm doing, which is very interesting. Thanks for the therapy, guys. <laughs> <laughs> That's all, Rob. <laughs>